Welcome to the Whole Food Healing Clinic podcast. I'm Brittany Darling, nutritionist, herbalist, mum of two, and I'm currently completing my master's in human nutrition. The aim of this podcast is to share with you our behind the scenes clinic banter, research insights, and candid chats with health professionals and other interesting real life people. I hope to offer healthcare professionals clinical pearls, and for those non-healthcare professionals, I hope to help you get your hands on some easy to digest, no pun intended, evidence-based, non-biased health info so you can live your best life. Hi everyone, I met here today with Amy Skilton and it is such a pleasure to have her um, with us. I feel so honoured. She is so knowledgeable and well respected within the natural medicine field. So Amy's a qualified naturopath, nutritionist, medical herbalist and you're going to have to say this word for me because I can't say it but uh, what is it? The um, aesthetician. Oh, aesthetician. It's such a fancy name for beauty therapist. (laughs) Oh, so fancy. So she's been in clinical practice for more than 19 years now, and she's um, been working for bioceuticals on their technical team for over 15 years. She's a presenter, educator, and writer as well. So she has several interests, including integrated medicine, women's health, hormones, natural fertility, healthy child development, gut restoration, and as well as her favorite subject, skin health. So you're also a um, certified building biologist or mold technician now, is that right? Yes, so I'm qualified in mold testing. I'm almost finished my EMF field testing and those two sit underneath the building biology qualification, which I will get in about, I think, 18 months to two years time. So, yes, I'm probably the most overqualified beauty therapist you'll ever meet. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So you've got lots of tools in your toolkit, which is great. Amazing. So those of you that don't know me, I'm Brittany Darling, nutritionist, herbalist, and mum of two. I'm also the founder of I'm Nutrients, and I'm currently working on writing a book with my friend Jack Orwell on um, plant-based pregnancy. So... Let's get into the thick of immune support. And I'm just going to move your little camera over here because I feel like I'm looking off to the side. There you are. Now you're nice and you're in the middle of my screen. Um, So immune support. Obviously, we're all in isolation at the moment. I've been in isolation now for 17 days. Um, Immune support is at the forefront of all my clients' minds. All my Instagram followers are asking what should they do for immune support. There's a lot of mixed information out there as well. So I'm hoping we can Mm. deep dive into some of the mechanisms and help people understand how nutraceuticals work, how the herbal medicines work. Yes. So. (laughs) So, my gosh, there's so much to talk about, right? Um, There's sort of three, I think the way I see it is there's sort of three layers to this conversation. And level one is, I guess, the basics of good health anyway, and that includes diet and lifestyle stuff. So um, you can't sort of out-supplement or out-herbal medicine or out-pharmaceutical bad choices that you make on the daily as as far as what you put in your body goes or, you know, not looking after it. But in addition to covering your bases, which is hopefully a little bit easier now that people's 
um, I guess physical ability to move around is limited. You've hopefully got a bit more time and energy to focus on this. Um, but on top of that though, there is a lot you can do preventatively and for treatment as far as nutritional medicine goes. And then um, I, you probably would agree with me here because you're a nutritionist and a herbalist as well. I view it that nutrients always come first and herbs layer on top as second. Herbal medicines are amazing, but they don't replace the way that nutrients are required for the body to function. And so that would be the way I would tier things um, whenever I'm supporting someone in recommendations. And of course, that's what I'm doing for myself right now as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. The nutrients are the the precursors or the what support the underlying biochemistry. So I totally agree. Um, let's talk about supplements then, because I mean, at the moment, it's really tricky for people to get their hands onto supplements at the moment. Almost is, all yeah. vitamin C is sold out. Any kind of thing with a slight immune indication is sold out. But let's, let's talk about that. And then maybe we loop back and talk about nutrition. So if you can't get your hands on supplements at the moment, at least people have something they can do with food. So yes. in terms of supplements, vitamin C has really come under fire. And people have been saying there's no evidence for vitamin C. It doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't have any immune um, indications unless you have scurvy. That's the you know, some of the stuff that I've been reading online. Can you explain, and this is what you're so good at doing, and this is why I so desperately wanted to speak to you. <laughs> Can you explain how vitamin C supports the immune system? Oh, man, I could talk for the entire hour on this, but I'll try and keep it succinct. So anyone saying there's no evidence for it hasn't really looked and probably added themselves as someone who doesn't know anything about nutrition. There is some evidence that shows it can reduce the duration and severity of some upper respiratory tract infections. But the thing with vitamin C is its role is more to preserve immune system activity as well as support it as opposed to, I guess, um, directly tackling a pathogen. Although I'll, I will add a caveat to that and say that I haven't seen any trial that really uses vitamin C in the way that would produce a result either. So before I dive into all of the things the body uses vitamin C for and the way in which the immune system desperately requires this nutrient, I want you to think about um, the level of vitamin C you need to be similar to what um, the amount of petrol you might need to put in your car on any given week. So for someone like myself who works from home, I don't do a lot of driving, so I don't put a lot of petrol in my vehicle. But if all of a sudden I was commuting to work, you know, 50 Ks away, I'm actually using a lot more fuel and therefore I'm all of a sudden gonna be using a lot more petrol in my vehicle. Vitamin C is, you need to look at vitamin C in a similar way. So in times of good health, when your body's not trying to defend you against, you know, pathogens that are rather virulent, you don't need a lot to keep your immune system ticking over and protected. But the minute your immunological army are called to engage in a battle with something like a virus, all of a sudden you are burning through vitamin C um, as a nutrient at an extreme rate. 
And I think, you know, in many studies, they've used really insufficient amounts. And I guess what I want to point out too is where they're using intravenous vitamin C in China at the moment, they've got a clinical trial going in Shanghai. The, because allopathic medicine don't use nutrients as a medicine like you and I do, they are calling the doses that they are currently using extreme and, you know, very, 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 very high when one of the trials is using between 12 to 24 grams a day or 12,000 to 24,000 milligrams a day. Now, that's a bit of a standard recommendation for many of my um, clients if they have the flu. And when you are really sucking through your vitamin C, your bowel can actually take up a lot more because your cells need it. Whereas if you tried to take that level, sure, in times of good health, you'd end up with diarrhea because your body just simply doesn't need that much. So I think in terms of evidence, I think some of it's lacking because people actually don't know how to use it appropriately. But the reason vitamin C is so important, there's a lot that vitamin C does actually, and I'm just going to run through a couple of things, but then I'm going to highlight my favorite thing. So vitamin C actually helps your body to produce more white blood cells. And if you're not sure what white blood cells are, these are literally the army of your immune system that fight off bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, anything foreign to your body that should be in there. You have specialized units of white blood cells that are designed to tackle viruses or bacteria or fungi. So vitamin C, when it's administered, can help boost your body's ability to make more of those soldiers. So the more you've got, the better chance you have of fighting something off. But in addition to that, vitamin C helps your soldiers do their job properly so they can respond faster, they can move around your body quicker, and they can be more aggressive in their approach and produce a better result, which is obviously what we want, right? Um, in addition to that, it helps proliferation of certain specialized immune cells like natural killer cells and suppresses, and I think this is probably quite important in the context of the conversation of this time, it suppresses overly inflammatory immune responses also. And that's a whole other sort of biochemical conversation, but that's quite important to ensure that your immune system in its you know, in its, I guess, vigor of running into battle doesn't cause you any harm in the process, which can happen in certain cases. Um, in addition to that, we know that if you don't have sufficient levels of vitamin C, you are much more prone to picking up germs and getting sick. But my favorite thing about white blood cells and the relationship with vitamin C is the with vitamin C, if you were to test your seconds, there yeah. was a there was a moment where you did a whoa, whoa, whoa. oh, and I I froze. I looked like yeah. I was in the Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> so that was because I was getting too excited. I yeah. think. Um, so I think what I was saying when I when I froze a little bit was that my favorite thing about vitamin C and the way it supports the immune system is the way in which it helps to protect our immunological army. 
So if you were to take someone's blood levels of vitamin C, blood is actually not a good medium to test many nutrients because it's not the target tissue. And in the case of vitamin C, one of the um, tissues that needs vitamin C the most are our white blood cells. And as a result, if you were to test the vitamin C levels inside a white blood cell, they are between 50 to 80 times higher than that which you'd find in the serum. So they are so thirsty for vitamin C because they need it for all of the things that they do. One of which is they secrete vitamin C across their cell membranes to protect themselves. Now, before I explain why, the way I want you to think about it is, you know, our skin produces natural oils to keep things in and to stop our skin drying out and to protect it from the elements. So white blood cells do the same thing with vitamin C. And the reason they need to do this is one of the ways that they try and destroy pathogens or disease causing germs is by spewing out really toxic chemicals that are lethal. Now, if the white blood cell doesn't have enough vitamin C to protect itself, it actually destroys itself in the process as it spews these chemicals out. And so their ability to protect you just ends very quickly and it's not going to end well for you if your white blood cells don't have enough vitamin C to preserve their ability to keep going. And so vitamin C perhaps is less about driving immune response, although that's important too, but it's about preserving your army as well so that they can keep fighting another day. Yeah. So... The other thing that interests me is the role of glucose and vitamin C and how they compete. Can you explain why everyone's sort of saying don't have sugar, avoid um, the white stuff? Yes, (laughs) Um, well. Interrelates with vitamin C. Yes, absolutely. So there's a lot of reasons to stay away from sugar, but also it triggers some pretty hardcore dopamine responses in our brain. So it's nice to have. And I'm not a purist either, or I limit it pretty strictly in my diet. But at a time like now, or at a time where there's something going around, or maybe you're fighting something off, that is the time to just lock it out of your diet entirely. And that's because of the way it interferes with how our white blood cells get vitamin C. So a bit of a backstory around this. We are one of only three animals on this planet who can't manufacture vitamin C out of glucose. We used to be able to. So a long, long time ago, we had a gene that coded for an enzyme called algalonolactone, and its job was to convert glucose into vitamin C. And scientists have hypothesized several things, one of which was that we would have made around eight to 10,000 milligrams a day when we used to manufacture it. And we manufactured a lot more than that, 15,000 milligrams or more a day in times of immune challenges. But they've guessed that because of perhaps a long period of time of vitamin C rich food, the body went, oh, we don't need that gene anymore. And it's a little bit like, You know, when you got your first smartphone, you downloaded all of the apps and all of the games and all of the organizing, and then eventually you sort of worked out you didn't use half of those anymore, and so you deleted them. And so our bodies went, "Eh, we don't need to be able to do that anymore. 
The unfortunate, I guess, hangover from that is our white blood cells don't know the difference. And glucose, if you look at its molecular structure, is almost identical to ascorbic acid. And so white blood cells are like, oh yeah, that looks, that looks close enough, we'll have that. Um, but unfortunately, sugar doesn't provide the immunological benefits or the antioxidant properties that vitamin C does. And so all of a sudden the white blood cell has taken up all of this sugar and it doesn't produce the same result as vitamin C. And just to give you one example of how dramatic the impact is, there is lots of measures of immune activity and immune integrity, but one of them is called the phagocytic index. And sometimes it's called the leukocyte, the leukocytic index, although not as commonly, but essentially it's the rate at which one white blood cell can gobble up a number of germs or bacteria. And let's just say for argument's sake, one white blood cell can gobble up 16 bacteria in an hour. That was kind of the average they found in this study. And that's assuming it's white, um, vitamin C replete. Now, when sugar was introduced and the white blood cells took up the sugar instead, its rate of um, destroying germs dropped by 75%. Mm. And so it was able to operate at 25% capacity, which meant it was only able to destroy four bacteria an hour, which means you know the rest of them are running around um, 12 bacteria doing whatever they want and reproducing. And so you can see how this is actually quite serious when you look at sugar having such a profound effect on your immune system. So right now, I, I, I'm not putting anything into my body that is refined sugar um, for that exact reason. But obviously people can eat fruit because fruit contains yes. vitamin C. So you're kind of balancing yes. out that effect totally yeah. real real food and fruit fruit has a mixture of, of obviously sugars but um and less slightly less glucose but it comes in this perfect little package from nature with bioflavonoids and vitamin c and other phytonutrients especially if you're having the skin um, the nutrients found in the skin of fruits and vegetables are actually there to protect the fruit from environmental stresses like obviously the elements but also fungi and viruses and bacteria so many of them have antiviral activity too so please don't think when you hear this i'm saying avoid fruit um, i'd probably at because it's late summer we have a lot of tropical fruits i probably would be mindful how much um, you're having of things like mango um, and some of those more dense fruits, but this is definitely not, I'm definitely not saying don't eat fruit. That isn't the case at all. Yeah. Okay, great. So the other kind of two minerals that spring to mind um, are zinc and selenium. And one of my favorite mm -hmm. pastimes is reading people's red and white blood cells um, and picking up nutrient deficiencies that way, because obviously we can't really test either of them accurately, like you said, same as vitamin C. Um, mm. We can't test either of them accurately in the blood. We can order a red blood cell selenium, but I don't find it yeah. too sensitive. Same goes for, um, for zinc. So um, can you explain how zinc works for immunity and also selenium as an antiviral? Yes. Okay. So starting with zinc, zinc, there's a few elements to zinc. 
We know that um, zinc along with vitamin A is crucial for epithelial tissue health. And epithelial tissue is just any tissue that faces the outside world. And that includes your skin, but also includes the lining of your nose, throat, lungs, as well as gastrointestinal tract and genitourinary tract. And in order to be able to repair and protect those tissues, you need to have enough zinc on board. So that is just as a physical barrier is really, really important. But zinc also plays an important role as far as the immune system goes as well, specifically. So when somebody's uh, immune cells are zinc replete, that white blood cell can mobilize itself very, very quickly. Now, if someone is not zinc replete or you know, a, a little bit deficient or a lot deficient, then that white blood cell is, is kind of trying to drive with the handbrake on. It can't get around very easily and it also can't do its job very well. So it's a very important antioxidant on board inside the white blood cell too. Now we know that if someone is low in zinc, and zinc deficiency is very common by the way. What it is for the symptoms that, I mean, I look at the white spots um, on the nail and even yeah. mouth ulcers and things like that, skin issues like acne, yeah. hair falling out. Are there any other symptoms that you look for clinically? Yeah, I think um, anyone who has a poor sense of smell or taste, um, that's a bit of a red flag to me. Um, the white spots on the nails, definitely. Um, there's something else I was going to say there and it's escaped me. I'm sure it'll pop back into my mind. But frequent infections, obviously that can also be indicative of other mineral deficiencies like iron, but, you know, yeah, lowered... Actually, I see in kids a lot, low appetite. Yeah. Yeah, yes, so really want to eat meats and things like that. Those that kind of fussy eater picture I see as well, um, zinc deficient. Yes. Yes, and a low tolerance to stress. So um, fussy eating because it's required for hydrochloric acid production, but also, yeah, just that um, reduced tolerance to stress as well. Someone who's a little bit more tightly wound, uh, they often have a bit of a pallor to their skin that can look similar to anemia, iron deficiency anemia, but isn't quite the same either. And also slow wound healing as well. Mm -hmm. So people who sort of say, oh, just takes me twice as long for, you know, a cut on my hand. But it is very common. And I think the other thing is it's, we lose a lot of urine when we're very, and so I think it's probably something that, everyone's going to need to boost their levels of for sure we, we just um, when you have good levels it means oh sorry oh, sorry that last bit i think what you were saying was that we lose a lot of zinc through our urine when you're when we're stressed is that right yes absolutely yeah. and of course right now yeah everyone is going to be stressed to one degree or another even if you're not impacted um, economically speaking or logistically speaking by what's happening right now, mm. we're all vulnerable to potentially having our immune systems challenged. And that is a stressful headspace to be in. So I and think- I um, the other thing is vitamin C as well. Sorry to keep interrupting. Yes. <laughs> but vitamin C for the adrenal gland function and to nurture those adrenal glands. It's so highly concentrated. Um, yes. Absolutely. So, yeah. If you're stressed. Very much so. And I guess it's funny, stress and low immunity or susceptibility to infections tend to go hand in hand as well. 
Yeah, they do. The, the whole adrenaline cortisol response doesn't help, which is why as far as lifestyle factors go, managing your stress and actively decompressing every day is so important. But yes, it will avoid your body burning through your zinc stores for that when it really needs to be using them for its immune response. In fact, you know, it was really interesting. I found that um, they've what's come out recently is plasma zinc levels, which we know aren't the, aren't the best way to assess zinc status, but regardless, plasma zinc levels have been found to be significantly reduced in people who then go on to develop severe acute respiratory distress syndrome. So there's a link to sort of how sick you're going to get um, as far as that goes. And that's probably because um, we know zinc's important for transcription factor activation. So the enzymes that the immune system uses to activate itself and also the cytokines it produces in order to marshal the rest of the immune system and destroy pathogens is, you know, in large part determined by zinc status. So it is something that's really important. And what's really interesting is one of the pharmaceutical medications they're using that is working quite well currently actually increases the amount of zinc inside your cells. So the term is a zinc ionophore and there are a few pharmaceutical medications that do that, but this particular one that they're using right now is exactly that, which means it's going to boost your zinc status in your cells. And, you know, that's obviously not a direct link, but I think it certainly makes sense as to partly why. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so the other thing I know we're going to talk about selenium, but I feel like that was a natural segue into vitamin D because yes. I feel like vitamin D plays a similar role, not obviously the same, but it's important for immunity and it also seems to dampen down this cytokine storm and also the pathways yes. to inflammation. Yes, absolutely. Vitamin D regulates genetic expression in just about every cell of the body and in the immune system specifically one of its key roles is to stop your body from being overly aggressive with inflammatory responses and it helps to promote um, a type of t-cell called regulatory t-cell which are the peacekeepers if you like of the immune system that will keep a lid on excessive th1 th2 or even autoimmune responses and helps to also facilitate secretory IgA production. Now, secretory IgA is an immunoglobulin we produce in all of our fluids, including the mucus that keeps our respiratory tract nice and moist. And that's really important to help prevent pathogens from adhering to the mucosa because you can in we inhale germs all day long. But if they can't attach to the lining of your mucosa, they cannot make you sick. So that's an important element. But the thing that I love the most about vitamin D in the context of this conversation, because there's a whole lot to love, um, is that your body uses vitamin D to produce antiviral compounds. Now, in the lining of the lungs specifically, there is a cathelicidin. Cathelicidin is one of many antimicrobial peptides or natural antibiotic, antiviral, antibacterial drugs that our bodies make. But in the cathelicidin family, there is one that is specifically identified by LL37 and it's antiviral and it's active against influenza A, respiratory syncytial virus, other respiratory tract viruses. 
And what that means is if you've got good vitamin D levels, your body can immediately produce antiviral compounds at your lung surface as soon as a virus comes into contact with it. So I actually think that's why currently things are not as bad in the Southern Hemisphere because we've just come off the back of summer. And even though Australian vitamin D levels are actually not great, even now, they're still better than anyone in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But I am clinically still seeing a lot of people that are vitamin D deficient in you know the last few months. So even coming yes. out of summer, I kind of, if I get a post-summer vitamin D um, result from someone, I always like to see that at its absolute optimal rather yes. than being on the lower end of the scale. And I've been seeing a lot of lower end of the scale. And I think yes. there's a big difference between what, say, a, a regular GP or doctor would consider as optimal or sufficient and what we consider as the ideal, optimal range yes. for a healthy functioning yeah. system. It's a, it's a chasm the size of the Grand Canyon. Um, currently, for anyone not in our industry, you're probably not even sure what level is good, what level is not good. But if you were to go to your GP and have your levels tested, as long as they don't come under 15 animals per litre, you're going to be told that they're fine. However, what we know in well, not even in clinical practice, this is research that's mm -hmm. out there and has been out there for a while. If your levels are actually below 75 nanomoles per litre, um, you're actually, your risk of getting the flu or any upper respiratory tract infection like a virus is actually doubled than if it was over 75. Now, if you fall below 50, your risk is actually tripled. And so to say to someone at 51 or 55 nanomoles per litre, you're fine is absolutely untrue mm. and, and quite dangerous. And when you compare that with Professor Michael Hollick's work, he, he likes to see people finishing the end of summer at 125 to 150 nanomoles per litre. Now, that's certainly the upper end of healthy as well. Um, so there's sort of no right or wrong answer at this stage other than you want to be over 75. Now, if you are finishing summer at around 75, you've got, you don't have enough on board to get through winter. And we know at this time of year, or even the height of summer, at least 25% of Australians are deficient by that definition of less than 50 nanomoles. And in winter, it rises to 75%, which is why everyone gets sick in winter. It's not that viruses have a summer holiday. They're around all the time, but our immune system is weakened by lower vitamin D levels. So and especially with the bushfires that we've had this summer, a lot of people have also in, you know, on the back foot. So I'm not surprised you're seeing so many people with levels that are just nowhere near what they need to be. And I'm getting worried now because obviously everyone's in isolation. So we're not getting that sort of tail end of the, you know, the beautiful sunny season. We're not sort of, uh, we're inside. We're not able to go outside as much. We're not exposed to that natural light. So one of my things, particularly for the pregnant ladies and also um, for babies, particularly breastfed babies, what I'm recommending is that they make sure that they get that RDI through a supplement yes. just for this yes. period while they can't go outside and get their sunshine because it is so important. Breast milk is a really poor source of vitamin D. Mum's mm. levels have to be, 
either extraordinary or they have to be on a dose that's considered above um, yeah. the, what's the word, sort of not the toxic. Safe. Yeah, the safe yeah. Um, upper limit. Yeah. So I'm definitely getting my pregnant and breastfeeding ladies on at least a thousand I use a day. And then mm. Bub, I'm getting that baby dose in every day. If they're breastfed, if they're formula fed, it's in the formula, obviously. Yeah. Um, and they don't need it as much. So yeah, while they're not getting as much sunshine, I think that's a really, that's one mm. of the key things that I'm giving all um, those natal people <laughs> yeah yeah perfect it's so important especially because they're both a little bit more vulnerable than everybody else too and of course yeah. the nutrient demand on mum is also pulling more from her than would be ordinarily the case yeah but what is interesting and what i've heard um some people talk about is the melatonin so in the yeah. trimester of pregnancy melatonin levels are much higher than what they are in a normal healthy adult and that they're finding that the melatonin is protective um, against this COVID-19, which is a really interesting finding. Same goes mm. for babies because their melatonin levels are quite high as well. So I thought that was a little yes. helpful gem and maybe a piece of information that might put these people in that, in that bracket at rest a little bit. And they, you know, perhaps knowing pieces of information like that won't stress mm. out as much. Yes, um, no, yes, nature's looking after them in a way. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah. also, I suppose, as an extension of that, um, that really points to the importance of having good sleep, enough sleep, <laughs> and, you know, avoiding things that are going to interrupt your sleep. One of the things that I'm noticing for people now more than ever is anxiously being connected to their devices, especially late at night, or even trying to give your brain a break from the stress by watching movies. But the blue light from devices, as well as the stimulation, of course, suppresses your normal sleep hormone functions at night. So being mindful of that and watchful of, you know, your blue light exposure and device time too. Yeah, and I know Dr. Ron Ehrlich was talking about nitric oxide production as well and making sure that you're breathing through your nose mm -hmm. at night time. Um, and interestingly, there was, someone was talking, I think it was last week, about babies naturally having quite high levels of nitric oxide in their nasal yes. cavity, which is helping them um, to protect against um, viral pathogens as well. Yeah. Yes, yeah, totally. So getting enough sleep. And if you have to, take your mouth with, um, uh, not surgical tape, but what is it? The paper tape to really encourage yeah. that nasal breathing and deep sleep as well. Well, I think the, just to, as I guess to add to that conversation, looking at why your mouth breathing is important. Mm -hmm. So the root cause of that. So anyone um, we're living in somewhere with too much dust or if there's been any water damage and mold, you're going to be a little bit more blocked up in the nose. And so if that's the case, an antihistamine might be helpful too, but treating that source is important. The other thing is mouth breathing, um, certainly with age, we lose muscle tone and things like that. You can actually get a mouth trainer, which is a little bit like doing bicep curls, but for your jaw to really tone up um, your whole musculature around the mouth. And the other thing just to consider is mouth breathing can kick in when your body is under distress of any sort. And so watching your stress management um, too would be really, really helpful. And then of course, in the meantime, using, you know, that tape 
can also just rewire the biofeedback and stop you know all of those mucous membranes drying out when you're sleeping mm -hmm. overnight with your mouth hanging open <laughs> yeah i hadn't thought about that actually the mucous membrane component of it mm. while we're talking about mucous membranes can we talk about vitamin a which is another fat soluble vitamin and yes. vitamin d is also a fat soluble vitamin vitamin a mm. we can get um in it's i guess retinol form right from animals yes. and then beta carotene from all your orange and red um vegetables so carrots um capsicums things like that so yes. can you talk about vitamin a in its role in the immune system Yes, so vitamin A performs a lot of different roles in the body, but when it comes to the immune system, there's a couple of key elements. So I mentioned earlier that it works with zinc to maintain the integrity of the lining of your lungs, in fact, all mucous membranes and epithelial tissues. So it's often used in gut repair programs and skin conditions as well. So that's really important. And uh, on top of that, however, it does have other functions in the immune system. And particularly when it comes to viruses, it is quite commonly recommended as part of an antiviral um, routine. And I think this is probably where people need to consider using vitamin A in its real form as opposed to its precursor. So the just for a little bit of um, gene talk again, the gene that codes for an enzyme called beta carotene monooxygenase is responsible for helping the body convert those precursors beta carotene from vegetable sources into vitamin A. Now that conversion is pretty low. It's about 1.5%. So that's important because too much vitamin A is toxic. So we don't want a conversion that's happening in excess all of the time. So for general health, that's usually enough. Um, however, in times of increased physiological demand, it's not sufficient to help your body keep its vitamin A status where it needs to be. And that's why we need to get it in its vitamin A form. This is particularly important for vegetarians or vegans who will need to look at a supplement um, because they're not having animal sources of this nutrient. So the reason it's really important is that one of the key things it does is if you're low in vitamin A, if you get a respiratory tract infection, your lungs are going to end up way more damaged than if your vitamin A is really good. And we know with what's currently happening, the damage to the lining of the lungs seems to be very extreme. And so vitamin A used therapeutically might be really useful here. But in addition to that, it's really important to boost what's called cytolytic activity or the way your immune system can destroy pathogens. It also specifically boosts the number of natural killer cells which are required to fight off germs. But perhaps one of the things that I love most about vitamin A is you must have good levels to be able to create antibodies. Now, most people have probably heard that term, but maybe don't really understand um, what it really means. So we've got sort of two parts to the immune system. We've got the innate immune system who are like the first responders. They're like a, a gang of baddies that rock up with all kinds of weapons who create a lot of damage in their initial attempt to try and get things under control. Now, the more sophisticated part of the immune system, if you want to call it that, or the adaptive immune system will rock up, 
shortly thereafter, hopefully, and do an assessment of the situation, look at what they're dealing with, and then create antibodies to match the pathogen that you're fighting off. And this is really the immunological memory, which means next time that pathogen shows up, your immune system can get rid of it far more quickly with far less fuss, sometimes even without you noticing. Now, in order to be able to develop immunity, which is what antibody creation actually is, you need sufficient levels of vitamin A. Now, if you don't have great levels of vitamin A, then your ability to develop antibodies is compromised and therefore you might not develop immunity like you hope you will. And I know currently it's unclear why this is happening, but there have been case reports of people catching this virus again. Now, there's a few reasons that might be happening. Viruses mutate, they also mutate in selenium deficient people very quickly, which is China, Australia, and New Zealand. We'll talk about selenium in a minute, but there's eight different strains currently of COVID-19 going around. So quite possibly the people that are being discharged are potentially getting a different variant. They can't tell with the testing what strain you've got, or I don't know how they're defining recovery, whether it's, um, they're no longer shedding the virus, but maybe they haven't fully recovered and it resurges. We see that um, you know, with glandular fever, for example, people recover and then it comes back up at times of lowered immunity. So vitamin A is in your toolkit to help you develop immunity in a more efficient and more effective way. But it has to be coming from animal foods, to have a sort of more therapeutic effect, right? And yes. I know that they used it for measles, or they still do use it for measles in a really mega dose mm, um, mm. at onset. And I think the dose is something crazy, like 200,000 IUs, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, you know, you wouldn't do without, obviously without medical supervision or um, recommendation. Mm. But yeah, one of my favorite supplements, and I'm not going to name it because I don't want people trying to go out and find it, but it um, helps with breaking down mucus and that's, it's quite mm -hmm. high in vitamin A, vitamin D and also enzymes. Um, yes. So in mucolytic kind of, uh, in mucus, it, um, mucusy conditions, um, mm. I find that super helpful to have that really high dose vitamin A as well. And I think vitamin A deficiency is super prevalent. I see a lot mm. of people with uh, keratosis pilaris on the back of their um, arms, a lot of night blindness, not obvious, you know, terrible night blindness, but people that, you know, don't drive at night because they can't see it properly and they think they might need to get glasses. Um, yes. So I think vitamin A deficiency is really prevalent. Um, it sure is. I think people are a bit nervous about it too, because obviously there's a nice sort of therapeutic window there. But if you go too high, you can, and especially if you're low in zinc, um, yeah. you can start having some challenges. So as you said, um, if you're going to use it therapeutically, obviously do so under a trained practitioner. Um, but it is very, very effective. And certainly with that mucolytic support too, that's a big one with this current pathogen because the other key feature of it is the mucus plug that forms in the bottom of the lungs that is, you know, just, you can't get out. And so anything that supports the breakdown of mucus in the lungs is certainly going to be something you want to have in your toolkit at home as well. Yeah, so I think at the very least for people at home that are thinking, what can I do to get my vitamin A and my vitamin D? I'm thinking 
cod liver oil could be a really good way of getting a, an okay dose um, of both of these, but also including things like organ meats. So like chicken liver pate and yeah. You know, if that's kind of your jam, it's not everyone's cup of tea, is it? No, no pun sure. intended. But yeah, those are the typically the foods that are quite rich in both vitamin A and vitamin D. Yeah. Yes. Depending yep. on how the animal's been raised as well. So you always, with organ meats, you want to make sure you're getting organic um, mm. and that the animal's had a nice life in order for you to yes. reach the nutritional benefits. And also to be high in zinc. Um, exactly so yeah triple whammy Mm. so i think we're just going to have time to talk about nutrients because i want to talk to you about selenium and maybe we can touch on pea if we have time yes and maybe an acetylcysteine too yes actually i'd love to talk about that as a music yes stress element as well of course all right so let's quickly talk about selenium so Selenium is a really important mineral. You don't need a lot of it to uh, produce a result. Um, It's one of the key nutrients required for our antioxidant enzymes to produce antioxidants like glutathione. These also play a role in immunity, although it's 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 a secondary role but there are two key elements with selenium that you need to know um, in regards to what's happening now number one viruses mutate very quickly in people that are deficient in selenium now that is very important because in australia we have selenium deficient soils so does new zealand and so does china and a huge belt of land throughout asia it's not um, a coincidence that some of these really virulent viruses are coming out of asia It is because they do mutate very, very rapidly. So by remaining selenium um, replete and having good selenium levels, you this is almost a bit like physical distancing. That's you doing your bit to limit the ability of a virus to um, dodge and change um, immunological surveillance. But in addition to that, um, dietary selenium and supplemental selenium has also been shown to have um, antiviral and antibacterial activity and supporting the immune system to clear both of those infections. So as I said, you don't need much, but it has a very profound influence on immune responses and again with that secondary boosting of antioxidants you can limit the collateral damage that occurs when your immune system is going into battle for you so um, this is a really this one usually you get the rda um, in your multivitamin here in australia but if you're not taking a multivitamin you can get the rda of selenium in just three or four brazil nuts Mm -hmm. Um, so it's something that's so easy to get um, and just makes such a big difference as well Great. Well said. I was going to jump in there with the food as medicine on the Brazil nut. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> yes. Well, oysters and seafood too, but um, obviously we've got to think about more budget-friendly foods. Um, yeah. Not I everyone mean, likes oysters. oysters. I mean, yeah. they're kind of gross. I know Lily Nichols, um, who wrote Real Food for Pregnancy, she recommends canned oysters for pregnant ladies. Um, mm. because obviously, they're sterile and they're safe and there's not that risk of foodborne illness. But I yes. did see someone the other day made a dip of canned um, 
oysters. So they mixed like mm. cream cheese or something with oysters. Um, wow. Yeah, smoked, smoked oysters. So I'm thinking. Oh, wow. That sounds like good. I could meal, get. Similar to like yes. a little pate kind of vibe. Yeah. Yes, a nice dip with some veggie sticks and... Yeah, and now that we're yeah. you know, clearing out our pantry of all the canned foods, it's time to go for all the, the weird things like the sardines yeah. as well, which are a great source of meat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. Need all these wartime kind of recipes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so PEA, which stands yeah. for, I'll let you say it. Parmetol ethanol ethanolamide. Oh God, I didn't, I messed that up. Ethanolamide. Yeah. So PEA is a compound that has only recently become available as a listable medicine here in Australia. And it's best known as a natural pain relieving compound. And it's getting a lot of airtime at the moment for the use in endometriosis and also migraines and nerve pain, phantom limb syndrome. And there's a few reasons for that, but it has, it helps to reduce inflammation in the body directly. But as it gets metabolized and broken down in the body, it also gets broken down into cannabinoids. So compounds that also medicinal cannabis has, and that have a really powerful anti-inflammatory effect. So on that note, it's going to help regulate excessive levels of inflammation in the body, in this case, from immune responses as well, which is, of course, um, part of that picture is the cytokine storm and the inflammatory cytokines that are produced just in really extremely high levels. Um, But you actually shared with me a very interesting paper that I've had a quick look at as using PEA as both a preventative and a treatment for flu and other respiratory viruses. And this just absolutely blew my mind. Um, How did you come across this? Um, I got sent it yesterday um, from one of the supplement companies, which I won't mention. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I fine. basically ignored what they sent me, went straight down to the references, read the references and was like, boom, I want to read that one. I want to read that one. I want to read that one. Just did a PubMed search. Yes, all up and then flicked, flicked my favourite to you. <laughs> oh, it's just <laughs> brilliant. Um, right? I couldn't believe it. Mm. Yes, it's wonderful. I mean, this is probably something worth having in your home medicine cabinet anyway for headaches. I know um, I personally used it for a migraine and um, just to, I guess, quickly give you an an anecdote. um, I don't get migraines that often, but when I get them, they're really bad. And the only thing that helps me is codeine. I've tried, um, I probably haven't tried some of those bigger herbs like Californian poppy that are restricted here. Um, And I just haven't bothered because I've been too busy, but I'll just go straight for the codeine. But anyone who's taken codeine will know it makes you very drowsy. It impairs motor function, cognitive function. It's not an ideal solution, but I ended up reaching for PEA one day and I'd actually allowed it to go on during the day. I'd taken a half dose of codeine because I needed to keep functional working I had it was on a deadline for something and so by the at the end of the day it was really bad I was feeling very nauseous and to be honest the only reason I tried PEA was because I didn't think I could swallow tablets at that point without vomiting and within 90 seconds of taking PEA the migraine was completely gone it was like someone released a pressure valve and just 
everything just drained away. And so ever since then, I'm just like, what is this thing? I, two weeks ago, I had a very similar experience. Started cracking a migraine. I was staring at my screen, barely able to keep my eyes open. I took PEA mm -hmm. 300 milligrams initially mm -hmm. with some magnesium threonine. So I do compounding in the clinic. So I kind of compounded a little concoction in a glass for myself. Took mm. that, it got better. About three hours later, it started to appear again. So I took double that dose again. And then for yep. the rest of the day, I was fine. Yeah, um, and I'm using it a lot for peripheral, peripheral neuropathy in my um, post-chemotherapy patients as well um, and getting really good results. So the fact that it's an anti-inflammatory agent as well and it helps with this cytokine storm is, yeah, mm. incredible. And we do very we, incredible. Do we um, produce PEA endogenously as well? Yes, yes, we yeah. do. This is literally a compound that our body manufactures to help us alleviate and relieve pain and inflammation in the body. So it's such a perfect agent to use because our body recognizes it it instantly and knows exactly what to do with it so I think it's one of those ones to watch actually I think in the next few years we're going to see some other incredible things come out about it that we're not even we don't even know yet what it's going to be able to do but I think it just makes it the one of the safest and easiest and most well tolerated um, pain relieving options that we have and yeah. anti-inflammatory options and certainly um, in this case it's not going to have any additive or detrimental effects with other supplements that you're taking it's mm -hmm. going to complement everything very nicely and so whilst i would prioritize things like vitamin a vitamin d vitamin c and zinc um, if your budget extends to you know be able to include it it's definitely worth having at home yeah. as well and especially at the moment, because they're saying don't take ibuprofen because mm -hmm. um, it's making the vir virus worse. Um, yeah. And then the other thing I think about with paracetamol or, um, yeah, paracetamol is that it depletes glutathione and glutathione is the precursor for all our antioxidant. Well, not all of our antioxidant capacity, but some of our antioxidant capacity within our body. Yes. So it's kind of, you know, what do you do if you crack yes, well, fever, you've got the flu? This to me seems like a really viable option. Very viable option because we know with major viral infections, we do that those symptoms we get are, you know, a large part because of the inflammatory cytokines. So the mood changes, the feeling like we've been run over by a bus and everything hurts and you feel really ill. I mean, that's inflammatory cytokines doing that to you. And so anything we can do to sort of ameliorate, that's good. And it is tempting to want to take paracetamol or some other anti-inflammatory just to feel better, but it actually disables and damages your immune system in other ways. And the, the link with ibuprofen at the moment, it's, it's unclear the mechanism of action, although knowing what we know, we can probably have a bit of a guess. Um, potentially also the reason they were taking that medication, those underlying conditions, if it was a chronically administered drug, could also be secondary factors there too. But ultimately, you know, either one of those is going to disable your immune system to one degree or another. So if you need pain relief or you need something that's anti-inflammatory, PEA is actually going to support you in terms of immune function and anti-inflammatory without compromising other areas of your health. 
Yeah, yeah, well put. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so before we run out of time, let's talk about N-acetylcysteine, which I think if I were to have one thing in my dispensary, I could choose one thing, it would probably be NAC, N-A-C for short, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so how are you using it for influenza and bacterial infections and things? So with NAC, it is a very powerful mucolytic and one of the things you want to just keep in mind if it's something you're thinking about using is that we also have a lot of mucus produced in our body as a form of defense and so high doses over you know even a medium term period of time could actually be counterproductive so it's not something i tend to recommend until someone has symptoms that indicate to do so the only exception to that might be you know a pharmacist or a practitioner who's seeing people um, in person still who might want to just take a tiny pinch so they've got a little bit on board because we know it's one of the nutrients that's a precursor for glutathione and if you keep the dose really low but basically anytime you start to see increased mucus production in the body so the minute there's a runny nose or the minute there's a stuffy nose or the minute that your sinuses are feeling clogged or the minute you start to get that post nasal drip down the back of your throat or you're like <clears throat> like clearing mucus in your throat or you're literally coughing things up now the only caveat to that is when we look at the way the symptoms are unfolding at the moment for this current virus the there often aren't those symptoms not everyone's getting a runny nose or a sore throat first many are but many are not and the mucus plug in the lungs actually seems to form first before you actually even know it's there. You're actually not coughing anything up. It just, you feel like you're suffocating and it's, it's hard to inhale properly. And so if you have any of the other symptoms, um, even without the mucousy symptoms, I would probably get straight onto it. I would, if that was me, um, I would be getting straight onto it because by the time I think people know the mucus is sitting in there, you're kind of on the last few days of taking action and often at that point it's you know do you need to be intubated or not so you know some of the first symptoms people are getting a gastrointestinal distress food poisoning type symptoms sometimes it's just lower gi like diarrhea sometimes it includes vomiting headache flu-like symptoms um, headaches are also quite common and of course fever although not everyone's getting the fever either so the minute you feel like something funny is going on, I would suggest using it for a burst of three to five days along with the other things and see, you know, see which way it goes. If you fulfill the criteria to be tested, unfortunately, that's not really sufficient. But if you do get tested, you might end up, you know, keeping on that regime. But I think it's better to act more quickly and get in earlier than wait till you're really sick or struggling to breathe to use it that's my opinion what would you yeah. what would you say um yeah use it acutely um and definitely get onto it as soon as you can but in the back of my mind i'm thinking it is a really potent anxiolytic and there is this huge epidemic of um what they call it but corona anxiety um yeah. So potentially just being on a low dose of it, um, yeah, yeah, next few yeah. months could be... It's doing double duty and you probably feel less anxious knowing you're already on something. 
it's going to break the mucus down quicker too. So that's probably a very smart thing to be on a lower dose. And look, at the end of the day, if you end up staying on a low dose of it, it boosts your glutathione as well, which is another winning combination. Um, let's say, let's say for argument's sake, this period of um, vulnerability lasts for the next three to six months and someone was on a low dose of NAC for three to six months. You know, there is plenty that we can do as practitioners to help restore and foster, you know, the glycocalyx of the gut and the natural mucosal secretions in the epithelial tissue. And of course, zinc and vitamin A are gonna support that too. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be an absolute no or a yes either yeah. way. And I guess it comes back to that individualization of treatment protocols. When we, like both of us, when we see a client, you know, we assess that whether they are potentially deficient in things like zinc, selenium, vitamin D, vitamin A. I always go through their diets and kind of pick it apart and see where there might be potential nutrient deficiencies there. Protein is a really key macronutrient for supporting the immune system as well. Um, so I think it does come down to that individualization, knowing what the person's life stage is, um, as well is really helpful. So as much as I'd love to go, here is our protocol, um, yeah. <laughs> this is the perfect thing. We haven't even touched on herbs or medicinal mushrooms. I think we're going to have to do that. That's like, part two? Like, that's part two. And part we, two. I feel like we could do part, you know, 102. Um, <laughs> we could talk forever. But um, yeah, just to wrap things up, I really want people to think about that individualization. I know you're offering immune um, consultations at the moment. I'm also offering yep. the acute um, immune consultations for people too. So yes. there are now absolutely online. Yeah. Yeah, it's so the way to go. You know, I feel I'm seeing a lot of people sitting at home scared, just watching and waiting to see whether they get it or not. And that is such a shame because there's so much you can do to support your immune system and just know your immune system is designed perfectly to deal with any pathogen coming along now obviously some of them are more virulent than others and there are a lot of other dietary and lifestyle factors that might increase your susceptibility but the truth is if you're nutrient replete then your body is going to operate in the way that it's designed. And so you don't just have to sit there and wonder what if, when is it going to happen to me? What is it going to be like? You can stack the odds in your favor. And I personally, that's the position I'm taking for sure. Mm. Um, but it is, it is one of those things that to get the best results, you do want to have recommendations given to you by someone who's qualified, who can speak to exactly what your body needs right now and the season that it's in and based on what you're currently dealing with too. So if you have the means, and this is something of interest to you, and if you're watching this and you've gotten this far, it definitely is, um, please see one of us or another practitioner who can really help you get the tools in your toolkit so you know what to do as a, as a support, as a prevention, so to speak, as well as knowing what to do with what you have at the first sign of any symptoms, because you can use those tools in a different way the minute you feel like something is coming on. Yeah. Amazing. So well put. Thank you so much, Amy. I, oh my God, I enjoyed that. You've kind of, you know, lit a fire.
So that was Amy Skilton, fellow nutritionist and herbalist. And wow, doesn't she explain things so well? We will be back next week on more about immune support. This time we'll be focusing more on herbal medicines and medicinal mushrooms. Look forward to seeing you guys then.